0: Mark chapter 6, we're going to read verses 14 through 29, uh, and then we're going to talk about it. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah, and others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner, with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his, dis- his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray before we get started this morning. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you, Lord, that you include these narratives intentionally on purpose. You want us to learn. You have a reason for the readers to hear this. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear what the Spirit is saying this morning. And Lord, help me to communicate what I should and what I need to. Lord, I ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, there's a lot to say here, but Let's just start with the fact that last week when we were reading, we went from Nazareth and the rejection Jesus experienced at Nazareth to Jesus immediately sending out his disciples with specific instructions, temporary instructions. Don't take any food, don't take any money, just don't take anything with you, and if people receive you, let your peace come upon their house. If they don't receive you, go outside the city and shake the dust off your feet. Remember that last week. That was what was going on. And in that, Jesus gave authority to his disciples to cast out demons and heal the sick. And that is what they were doing. In fact, last week we ended with verse 12. They go out and proclaim the gospel that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anoint with oil many who were sick and healed them. They went out and did exactly what Jesus gave them the authority to do. And then if you skip what we just read, all the way down to verse 30, it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. But in between that, and this is how Mark has been doing this in a couple sections already, he has this sandwich of information. And the two things that go together are the disciples going out proclaiming the gospel, healing the sick. Those things go together, and if we remove verses 14-29 through 29 and just swiped it out of your Bible and went from verse 12 to verse 30, it would make perfect sense. Because the John the Baptist thing and King Herod, that, why is this in here? Mark is communicating at this same time something that's going on something that was incredibly relevant to everybody, and he chooses this moment where the disciples are going out doing miracles that Jesus gave them the power to do. He chooses that moment to bring up what's going on in the court of Herod and a reminder of of the political and the social and what's going on in that realm at the time that Jesus is out doing ministry. And he cuts in and he says, in verse 14, King Herod heard of it. What did he hear of? He heard of these miracles. Jesus' fame is spreading around. And one thing for you and I to kind of try to wrap our head around, up until this point, John the Baptist is really more famous than Jesus. Because John the Baptist is saying all kinds of crazy stuff and drawing gigantic crowds. And Herod was intimately acquainted with John the Baptist because that's what this story is going to tell us about. Listen to what the people of the region were saying about what was going on. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. When they hear of these miracles that the disciples are doing, They're saying, is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? Because Herod cut his head off. Is that who this is? And then others were saying, it's a prophet. Like Old Testament prophets. Some were saying specifically, it's Elijah, because they knew that Elijah was prophesied to come. They're waiting for this rebirth of Elijah, which Jesus tells us was John the Baptist. Ironically. So that's what the community's saying. That trickles up into the ears of King Herod. Now let's talk about King Herod before I go any further. King Herod Antipas, this is who this is, he is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who murdered all the babies when Jesus was born. Herod was a... So you have a... Where's Abigail? Is she in here? So Abby's always saying, Dad, historically, what's going on at the same time? So, Herod the Great was a rival, believe it or not, with Cleopatra, uh, and, uh, but he was loyal to Antony, Herod the Great was. Has everybody got that picture in your head from history class around that time? So, uh, but Herod the Great uh, was a wicked, wicked, wicked man. Obviously, he killed two of his own sons. Um, Because he viewed them as political rivals. One of the sons he kills has. uh, How does this family tree work? One of the sons that he kills uh, has a daughter, and her name is Herodias. And so King Herod has with another woman a son named, they call Herod Antipas, who marries his half niece. Herodias. Super exciting family. uh, Super exciting royal goings-on, as went on frequently in antiquity. But not only did Herod Antipas marry his half-niece, she was already married to his brother, Philip. And they meet on some journey somewhere, and he just says, Hey, I'd rather have you for a wife than the one I've got. And so he takes... And Herodias is in agreement with that. And so he just takes his brother's wife, who is his half-niece, and start an adulterous relationship. And that's what causes the problem because John the Baptist, as we read here, was saying it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So this is the exciting family tree that we've got going on here. And John the Baptist... Who was very meek, very, very quiet, very gentle, uh, John the Baptist said, "You all are living in sin that's what John the Baptist said. John the Baptist said, "You all are in trouble." Like to sometimes picture John the Baptist as a preacher out in Wayne County on the sawdust floor at midnight at an old camp meeting, just bellowing and but But under the unction and power of the Holy Spirit, how many of you know what I mean? Campfire, camp meeting preachers, right? That John the Baptist had that vibe of this is wrong. And he proclaimed the word of God to the king. "You You guys are going to hell, is what he was saying. You are wrong. Now Herodias hated him because of this. But look, look at what it says. So look at what it says in verse 20, or verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. How did he keep him safe? He threw him in prison. So he wants to appease his wife to a certain point, but under no circumstances is he going to kill John the Baptist. And look at the the next verse. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. What in the world? There is something about righteousness and holiness that repels and attracts at the same time. You know, Benjamin Franklin was a lecherous man in American history. He went to France frequently, loved their culture, which was basically... 1960s Woodstock, uh, they just it was no holds barred, all rules no rules existed. It was Sodom and Gomorrah, and Benjamin Franklin loved it. But he also loved George Whitfield's preaching. How many of you know who George Whitfield is? One of the great uh, awakening preachers of the 1700s. George Whitfield used to be an actor, and when he would preach, he had this eloquent, booming voice. He used to preach out in fields, and there'd be thousands of people, and they would, there would be tons of people getting saved all over America, and he had this just booming orator's voice. And Benjamin Franklin loved to go listen to him preach about sin, righteousness, and repentance. Loved it. And then would get on a boat and go back to France and live like the devil. Now, how does that happen? When Herod hears John, he is greatly perplexed because John's saying things like, you can't have, your, you can't have this woman as your wife, that is your brother's wife, not to mention it's your half-niece, and yet he heard him gladly. Part of what I want us to see out of this is how God has in common grace to all people, he has set eternity in our hearts, and sinners have a conscience. Go back up to verse 16. When Herod heard about these miracles, He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Why did he say that? Because his conscience is bothered. The reason we know his conscience is bothered is because the rest of the story is explaining why Herod said this. Herod said it because Herod had cut John the Baptist's head off. And so there's this issue of conscience going on with King Herod after the fact He's already done this deed and Mark is giving it to us to let us know that when Herod hears about the miracles, he goes, oh no, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. I just, I just know it. I just know it. That's who it is. Because I murdered somebody that I knew I shouldn't have murdered against my own conscience. But I did it anyway. Let me just say this. Before we go on, when I say that God set eternity in our hearts, all people's hearts, and given us a conscience, partly what I'm saying is, we believe that men are born sinners. We believe in a doctrine called total depravity, which says man is not able to save himself, because his heart is evil. Romans chapter 3 says that there is none righteous, no, not one. None has sought God. None. We do not believe that people are seeking God. We believe that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We believe that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin. God comes after us. It is not the other way around. I hear that all the time. Men are searching for God. No, they're not. They're searching for happiness in anything other than God. And when you become a Christian, what happens is is you continue to seek happiness, but you seek that happiness in God, not outside of God. So we believe in total depravity, but total depravity does not mean that men are as wicked as they could be. Now, given the right circumstances, and you can look, give somebody absolute power, Stalin, Hitler, Nero, give them absolute power, and what happens? They will go to unbelievable depths of depravity. But not always do people do all the evil that they could. If that were true, then there would be a lot more murder, rape, theft, and everything else going on. God's common grace to the world is that we have a conscience that was given to us by God, that knows there is a law somewhere. And Herod is demonstrating that because he's attracted to what John the Baptist is saying, and yet he's not really doing anything about it, and, but he doesn't want to kill him. But he does anyway. Are you all seeing what I'm saying? God has a restraining effect on the utter sinfulness of man but we can't look at that and say, oh, well, his conscience bothered him. That that means he's probably at heart a good person. Because that's what we're tempted to do. To say that, well, you know, he's got a good heart. But that is not what the Bible actually teaches. This good conscience that he has that tells him that what he's going to do is wrong doesn't prevent him from doing what is wrong. And it is the doing of what is wrong that is Going to be judged, not the intention of the heart. In fact, Hebrews tells us that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to separate soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God lays all of that bare, and that is what we need from the Gospel to lay bare the sinfulness of our heart so that we can receive Christ and be forgiven from the sinfulness of the heart. What Herod needs is repentance and forgiveness, not, I feel bad about killing somebody. We are really quick in our modern culture to say, well, see, he he had a good intention in his heart. Old preachers, and I believe Charles Spurgeon said it at one point, that the road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. Good intentions are what's the word, worthless if the action does not follow the intention. Okay. Verse 21 gives the story of how Herodias got what she wanted. An opportunity came when on Herod's On his birthday, he gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. Also known as, this was a big giant party for the who's who of Galilee. This is an important group of people party, there was a lot of food, and there's probably something called alcohol. In fact, we know there would have been alcohol and they would have all been drunk, Verse 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced. She was not tap dancing. She was not clogging. She was not doing ballet. Whatever kind of dance this was is the kind of dance that made men happy. So you can fill in the blanks as to what she was doing. Now here is to insert more grossness into it is, this is Herod's stepdaughter. Okay? This is his stepdaughter. Her name is Salome. We don't have that in the text. We know that from Josephus. And he looks, and I don't know if the text is intending to tell us that Herod himself was pleased with the dance, or if what's really happening is Herod looks at the military commander's the nobles, and the who's who in the business community of Galilee, and sees their reaction, and it's his stepdaughter, and he goes, this is a great moment for me to solidify support. I will make this brash oath to her and say, up to half my kingdom, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Now, he wasn't going to give her half his kingdom. That's just a colloquial expression that means, I'm willing to give you something big, because you've just made everybody here happy. And that's what he does. Now she, being shrewd, and keep in mind, we're in a banquet hall, Herod's birthday party, she's just made all these guys super happy. She runs outside and says, Mom, what should I ask for? And her mother, who's clearly a political plotter, who left her husband Philip, who was just a, he wasn't a king, Herod is technically not a king. Herod Antipas, he's actually a tetrarch. He's just got a little territory here granted by Rome. I want John the Baptist head. Because her wickedness doesn't even come with a conscience. Her hatred is way deeper. Herod, her husband, is attracted to John the Baptist, wants to protect him. He likes listening to him. Not his wife. She wants him dead. So in this moment of drunkenness and party and revelry on the birthday, she sees an opportunity and go back in and tell him you want John the Baptist head right now. You can you can hear the urgency in it. She says uh, the head of John the Baptist, and she came verse twenty five, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist, on a platter. I still hear that phrase today. They want your head on a platter. You ever heard that at work? This is where it comes from. The barbarism of that. The violence of that. Sometimes we look at our culture and say, we're pretty barbaric. And we are. We're slaughtering millions of babies every year. We are a barbarous culture, no matter how refined we think we are, when, when we look back in history, or we're going to look back from heaven, and look at the sterilized murder of children, un, just unbelievable amounts, There there will be great shame. But this is what happens with barbarian-like thinking. I want his head, and I want it on a platter, and I want it here in the birthday party. I want it now. Because if we wait till the morning and the alcohol's worn off and the dance is forgotten, I may not get it. I want it now. And so Herod who was willing to marry his half-niece and take, he, take her away from his brother, decides to be a man of righteousness and fulfill his oaths. Or is, or is it more of he's just scared of who he said it in front of? I seriously doubt that Herod is worried about breaking an oath, but that's what he says. Verse 26, And the king was exceedingly sor- sorry, but because of his oaths, and his guests he did not want to break his word to her he doesn't want to lose faith face in front of these noblemen and the who's who of the town and they clearly are in favor of it because now this party has just ratcheted up to going it's going to be talked about for years you remember the time we went to Herod's party and the girl came in and danced and it was awesome and the food was awesome and everything was awesome. And then at the end, as the grand finale, we got that loudmouth righteousness, hellfire and brimstone preacher's head on a platter? That was the greatest night ever. That is the environment. Don't think for one second that the world doesn't revel in Christians having problems. Because it does. And immediately the king sent an executioner with order to to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. They did it that night during the party. Brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. So when Herod hears about the miracles, the first thing he thinks about, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's who this is. There's two main points I want us to take away from this. Let me read the final verse, and then we'll talk about the two points. Verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. That means the body didn't remain in the prison. They cut his head off, tossed it outside somewhere in the dirt, and the disciples of John had to come to show honor and bury him. two major things I want us to see, and I promise this will swing up into something encouraging, okay? The first thing we've already talked about, and that is the issue of conscience. There is a difference between a sorrow of being caught and being wrong, but not changing, and a sorrow that leads to repentance. There is a difference Herod demonstrates the difference. Do you know what happens after this? Just a few years later, about ten years after this, in AD 39, Herodias is demanding that Herod be granted the title of king. Because he's not technically a king. Mark mentions him as King Herod, and that's either sarcasm or just the Jews would have looked at him as king because he was the tetrarch set in place by Rome over their little region in Galilee there. But she wanted her man to have a title. It's not enough that he lives like a king and has all the trappings of a king. I need him to have a title and she goads him and goads him and he goes and makes a request to Caligula. Does that name ring a bell in history? He was a super nice guy. They go to Caligula to get permission to be called a king, and he's so annoyed that he sentences them, the worst punishment ever, to Gaul. Does anybody know where Gaul is? France. He exiles him to France, which is clearly the judgment of God, that that is where he has to go live the rest of his life. He and his wife, they get banished to a little place in France. There was no repentance in Herod's conscience that was bothered. He was clearly bothered. Herodias doesn't have any indication of being bothered. But he did. And you've got to think, he grew up in a Jewish culture and had some kind of semblance of understanding, but never really lived it. He grew up in a royal family, never really lived the life But somewhere in there, there was some kind of nostalgia for the kind of preaching that John the Baptist was giving. And I'm telling you, that to me, just the parallel to American Bible Belt culture, where people start saying things like, I know I should go to church, and they get these warm fuzzies when they go to church. The smell of the old pews, the feel of... VBS in the summer, the Christmas plays, whatever it is that gives them a sense of nostalgia for a life that they never really lived, but recognize as a part of the culture and the fabric of the world they lived in. And they, they can maybe feel bad about certain things, but it doesn't produce change in their life. Because they don't belong to Christ, they never... Give their life to Jesus. They just like the idea of the trappings and the hymns and the Bibles and the and the people shaking hands in the hallway and watered down four-year coffee and whatever else. We don't have watered down four-year coffee. Thank you, actually. Um, but you guys know what I mean, right? All the trappings, all the trimmings of church can make people feel nostalgia, and I have a feeling that that is somewhat what was going on with Herod as he heard John the Baptist preach. But he never repented of his sin. That is a dangerous thing to think about, isn't it? That we have people that are attracted to the idea of church, but their hearts do not belong to Christ. The warning that I have is, is the warning of the New Testament, check yourself. Do I belong to Christ? Am I here? Or am I going to church wherever I'm going to church because I'm supposed to? Or because Jesus Christ is Lord of my life and I love Him more than I love anything else? And when I recognize I love something else more than I love Jesus, it bothers me and I try to work, try to change, and Lord, I need help, and I'm, we're just totally dependent on His grace. Please do not hear some kind of works thing I'm, I'm saying that we are utterly dependent on His grace, and when we recognize where we fall short. Lord, help. But that is not what Herod is doing. Herod recognizes that he's wrong, and he's trying to hide in the dark somewhere, and he hears the story of the miracles of Jesus and goes, that's got to be John the Baptist. Come back to haunt me for what I did. He feels bad, but there's no repentance. Feeling bad is meaningless. Repentance is what God requires, which is, verse 12, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. The message of the gospel is repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, repentance is not a work that you work up. Repentance is in response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We need grace to repent. We need His help So this morning we should be saying, Lord, help me. And when your heart is convicted by the Holy Spirit, you say, Lord, forgive me. And He does. Feeling bad, but continuing in the behavior is what causes a calloused conscience. Eventually, you quit caring. The good news is that God's mercy is new every morning. You can hear a sermon like this and say, I don't want to be like Herod. I don't want to feel bad for things, but continue in them. Lord, help me. Your conscience is convicted by the Holy Spirit. You say, Lord, help me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I turn my heart to you. There's another thing in here I want us to see. It's John the Baptist. What did he do wrong? What did John the Baptist do wrong? Well, he told a king that he was living in sin. Is that wrong? No, that is not wrong. We like this little phrase in our culture today, speaking truth to power. Doesn't The people who say that I don't think mean it. Speaking truth to power would be exactly what John the Baptist just did. John the Baptist said, there is a greater power than you, king, and you are subject to that power. And you have violated his rules. That's speaking truth to power. Calling politicians to account that there is a greater authority. Separation of church and state, I understand but the state is not above God. We know this, right? The state is not above God. The state will be held accountable to God. Those who are in positions of authority will be held account for what they do. We are bearing a responsibility to pray for the state. That is what Christians are called to do. Especially if you didn't vote for them. We have a privilege of living in a democracy, but the state is accountable to God and there is nothing wrong with the church saying, state, you are out of line. In fact, the church is probably supposed to be a prophetic voice that says when the state goes completely off the rails, hey, what are you doing? And the result of that according to this verse, and church history, is you might go to jail and you might be beheaded. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to have that happen. I'm just saying that that is historically true. And it happened to John the Baptist. He got thrown in the jail for saying, your relationship is wrong. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to finish here. I want to bring this up because this feeling that Christians have, kind of an all-pervasive feeling, Psalm 73, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, and I compared it to my own self, and I am all day long troubled, I am all day long oppressed, and I see the prosperity of the wicked, and I see that they mock God, When I thought about how to understand this, it was too troublesome for me, and I didn't even talk about it, or I would have been unfaithful to the generation of your children. And then Asaph, who writes this psalm, says, Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. That psalm is very similar to the feeling that Christians can have, especially you see a John the Baptist character who has done nothing wrong, He's actually stood up for righteousness, and his reward is dungeon first, beheading second. And Christians are frequently asking questions like, I'm serving God, why isn't everything perfect? Why isn't everything right? Why do other people live with relative ease, and my life is difficult? Has anyone ever asked this as a Christian? Of course you have. John the Baptist is a great example of doing everything right and living a life eating locusts, wearing camel's hair, being despised by everybody, and the reward you get is prison and then beheading. (laughs) Christianity is not about suburban America even though we mostly live there and it's a great blessing that we do but we can't confuse the blessings of God that we do have as our just due because the bible tells us that the world will hate us and john the baptist is an example of standing up for righteousness and receiving the hatred of the world. But here's the encouragement that we need to have. We need to have an eternal perspective. Listen, I like my house, and I like my cars, and I like my farm, and I like my dog, and I like my garden, and I like the stuff that I've got. I like my children too. Of course I do. Gee whiz. I would assume that would be... My kids are over here like, I hope we get mentioned in that list. You are. We love you. I love all the blessings that God has given. But under no circumstances can I say, this is my just due from heaven. And this is what I better have until I am dead. Or I'm not going to serve God. Or I'm going to be grumpy and throw a grumpy pants fit if I don't get what I want, when I want, how I want it. Because I might. Not, and you might not either, but here's the encouragement. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And this is, just went through the golden chain of redemption that we belong to Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Anything we've got has graciously come from Him. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So no demon from hell or person on earth can bring a charge against God's elect. They can't because it's God who justifies. He holds the gavel. He reads the sentence. Nobody else. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? He is praying for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, like the one that cut off John the Baptist's head. Did that separate him from the love of Christ? No. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through beheadings, through imprisonment, through being mocked and made fun of, through persecution, tribulation, famine, distress, and all those things, we are more than conquerors. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation, that doesn't leave anything out. will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing separates us from God. John the Baptist in that prison knew I have a reward in heaven. We need an eternal perspective. We must have one. Saints of old had one, but it's hard to have an eternal perspective wallowing in prosperity as we've done our entire lives. We wallow in it. We live in prosperity to a degree that would stagger the imagination of all of history except really for the last 60 years or so. We truly are blessed beyond anything anybody has ever seen. And I'm not condemning because God in His mercy and grace has done wonderful things through these blessings. For the good of the world and the flourishing of humanity. It's, that, that, I'm not saying that it's bad that we flourish. It's good. But if we lose perspective on eternity and turn from Him to the stuff and try to hold on to it and lament possibly losing it, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul, Jesus said. I'm trying to shake us out through this story, shake us out of the mindset that says the goal in life is to get as much as I can to live and work hard and have a family and everything just be tidy and neat and perfect. The goal of serving Christ is Christ. He is the end and the means. Do you understand that? He's the end goal And He's the means by which we get to the goal. You can't get to the goal without Him helping you get to the goal. And He's the goal. Everything is wrapped up in Jesus. It's wrapped up in Him. And so I am encouraging you to let your heart be free of the anxieties of the world and say, I belong to Christ. Nothing's going to separate me from the love of Christ. I want to pursue Christ. And I'm going to take the blessings I have as blessings from Him but I want to honor and serve Christ through that. Maybe God will call me to give some of it away. Maybe God will call me to go on a mission field. Maybe God will call me to do who knows what. But great and big things are done by Christians who quit viewing the world as their permanent home, recognize that our permanent home is in heaven and everything in front of us is temporary. We get 90 measly years on planet Earth, barely, anything, a blip, it's not even a blip in eternity. But all of eternity will be weighed by what we did here. So I want it to count. Don't you? I I want to do something with my life that honors Christ and doesn't just go along with whatever the cultural flow is at the moment. So, that's why we're here, as a church, as a people, to be salt, to be light, to love not our lives unto death, but be willing to be beheaded if necessary. I I don't think that's going to happen, maybe, hopefully not, but I don't know. Again, I just turn on the news and it's like opening a box that's just screaming and shouting and it's... Terrifying, and it's not like it was 20 years ago. Not even close. It's crazy. It's Looney Tunes. I listen to the Senate hearings. Lord have mercy, the stuff that they say to each other. But it's not without historical precedent. It's not like Christians haven't been through stuff like this before, because they have. It's just new to us. And the only way to survive is to have a biblical worldview and an eternal perspective. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, serve the Lord Jesus Christ with your body. Live for Him all the way. Renounce sin. Repent. Don't just be sorrowful and feel bad and go do it again. Go to God and ask for His grace and His mercy. He loves us to the end. Amen? Praise the Lord. Let's stand up. We're going to be dismissed. I want to ask you to bow your head with me in prayer, if you would. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Lord, that your goodness is made manifest to us through your Son, Jesus. You've graciously given us all things. Lord, help us to discern the difference between sorrow and repentance. Lord, help us to see that we are not ever separated from the love of Christ. You are the one who justifies. Your death, burial, and resurrection is not a flimsy thing dependent on me. It is eternal, solid, and steadfast. It is the rock on which we stand. Lord, I pray that this week we would have firmness under our feet, boldness in our hearts. We'd be courageous in sharing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would not love our lives unto death, that we would look to you in everything with eternity in mind. God, help me to do it. Help all of us to do it. Let us be a light in a dark place here. We thank you for that, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed. If you want to give, you're giving here into the bucket or online. If you're visiting, welcome.